You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. You're, you know, managing director of a big VC fund slash hedge fund. So we're going to talk about our hair. <laughs> what do you do during the day other than brushing your hair? <laughs> it depends. Sometimes... Um... I'm working on physics. Sometimes I'm thinking about markets and contributing in our research group. Uh, sometimes um, I'm listening to somebody, you know, talking about a company, or we're trying to think about where we might take the philanthropic arm. But I don't get a chance to talk too much about Peter Thiel, and I consider him uh, not only my employer, but he's an amazing friend, an amazing human being and a great teacher. What's a couple of your takeaways from interacting with oh, him? Oh, well, part of the problem, you see, the reason I don't talk about Peter almost at all is, is that the news media created a fictional character called Peter Thiel, um, and the two of them are totally different. The real Peter Thiel and the fictional Peter Thiel aren't the same person. And so every time I talk about the real Peter Thiel, people imagine that I'm talking about a vampire who lives on a seastead uh, you know, off of New Zealand drinking the blood of virgins to stay young. And I've just never met that person. 
they figured out a very effective gambit for trying to silence his insights. But I'll give you one insight that I think is really particularly good. So let's take this to the, you know, you coining the phrase, the intellectual dark web. You felt free to express opinions among the select group of friends and colleagues you chose to be around you on a daily basis. You 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 feel comfortable saying what you think because they don't uh, slander you for it or ruin your career for it. No, I don't feel comfortable saying what I think. <laughs> I just can't stop. Okay, that's fair enough. But I'm assuming some of the people in your wife in your life, including your wife, your boss, some of your colleagues, you feel like they're not going to fire you or divorce you or whatever if you say what you that you maybe you think I'm taking a risk. <laughs> but you're willing to go up against that edge. Well, I mean, yeah, yes. If that's a safe environment, then you should definitely use those people to practice. Right, and then as it gets, as the audience gets bigger to include strangers or Twitter or media or way, ways in which you your model, ah. which you, 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 use, you, you built a model with the safe people. Now your model is breaking down because you're in the, the, the crowd and... You know, for instance, let's take a recent uh, tweet of your, or not so recent, but a fairly recent tweet of yours. Um, I don't want my daughter to think going to HR is her path to financial success, something like that. Um, that was very specific to the James Damore situation. Right. I want to be very clear about that. Right. So, it was, so in, in a world that where the context is absent, um, that was in no way, shape, or form about sexual harassment. It was a specific to having had my brother as a biologist ejected from his university where he was a professor to watching another biologist, James Damore, ejected from Google. And it was hyper-specific to reading a tweet from a woman who worked at Google saying, if HR doesn't get rid of this problem, you know, I'm quitting, I'm leaving, this is ridiculous. And so I thought about okay, this is a woman complaining to HR that the um, situation in which Google asked for James Damore's feedback and he gave feedback based on the literature and then they fired him for the feedback that they asked him to give. I mean, that's, an, that's, that's some form of entrapment to me. It's bananas. And right. the idea that you're going to listen to people complaining to human resources for somebody doing what you've just told them to do. He's carrying out the orders of Google. Right. So, so, so and I, and I, and I should have been more specific because it was specific to that. Obviously, you didn't mean, you know, no, everybody but, but, runs the but, HR but, is ridiculous. But, but, wait, wait. It's an important point. The problem with what you just brought up is, is that is what I'm calling the gotcha game, right? Mm -hmm. So, lots of people understood that this was about biology and Google being very uncomfortable about the fact that men and women score differently on big five personality inventories. Mm. And that success in the workplace may be correlated much less to gender, but to the attributes of openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, neuroticism, what have you, right? And that males and females may differ in that. And so it may be expected that in certain lines of works, you, you'd expect a female tilt or a male tilt, and it, it can be different. What was outraging me was understood by many people who tried to go after that tweet. And this is the interesting and dangerous part. 
They like the fact that it doesn't carry the context so it can be made to sound different than it is. Mm. And the reason that many of us get upset is, is that we understand that the game that the left, which I, in which I live, right, is playing a game of gotcha, right? And the idea is that you say something, oh, can we take it out of context? Can we mean it to suggest something that it never meant? Can we lie about you in a way that you will have to work uh, day and night to clear your own reputation as we attempt uh, to make you null and void? That's the tweet you're talking about. And one of the things that was fascinating about it was that it had a tremendous amount of support and the news media, I mean, I saw it on MSNBC. People were trying to construe it as something it wasn't. So anyway, what would you like to say about that tweet? So, and and by the way, I've had not... And well, maybe an experience on the same level. Like one time, I wrote an article about uh, an, an evening out with my daughter on her birthday, and that basically asking please everywhere allowed us to open doors at various places where doors were closed to us. And someone wrote an article against me saying, um, and she said specifically in her article, imagine the last part of every sentence in James's article was because I'm a white male. And she got millions of views on her article and people were threatening me physically. I got death threats. It was, it was all over everything. It was, and people who had previously been strong readers of mine were, you know, left and it was was very personally frustrating and, and affected my income, you know, perhaps it's hard to, it's hard to judge. Right. They, they, they got me and it was completely ridiculous too. Right. In the same way. But so, 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 Given this experience, given that I felt safe initially with my readership writing this, and they and that obviously they would know what I meant, and obviously sure. you, you thought people would know what you meant, now you're expanding out to a crowd where they don't quite. They're, a, they're playing the game gotcha, which you would never that you had never experienced that with your crowd of close associates, associates, and and you've widened this audience, um, so now you're able to. You know, again, there's a missing neutrino all of a sudden. Uh, uh, the missing force is that uh, people in a in a large enough group are not going to quite understand, or there's going to be someone who's going to attack. And and I think that's always going to happen. I wouldn't think of that as a missing neutrino situation. There is a scale feature that as you become more visible, the um, bounty for taking you down. I mean, there, there there are life forms that simply exist in a very negative, energetic environment where they're just hunting for things that are large and it's easy to bring large things uh you know to their knees at the moment right so so what I, what i'm saying is that you you got into a large enough yeah. experimental group that yeah. that the neutrino disappeared there was a missing energy the missing energy was people understanding you oh, oh all of a sudden people are not understanding me the let, way let's i thought do they that would. a little bit differently if you want to get to the neutrino thing yeah um, very interesting uh, where video presence in, in telepresence in teleconferencing uh, was initially not very successful and it turned out that it was hard to put the camera where people's eyes were on the screen and so if you were looking at, into the eyes of the person projected to you you were never looking into the camera so you always looked to them to be unable to meet their gaze so you think like the naive hope would be telepresence and teleconferencing would be awesome. The realized um, disappointment would be, boy, do we have a lot of deals breaking when we do them through teleconferencing. And then you would try to discover 
when those deals broke, then you might dis- discover that it had to do with eye contact. And so the failure to transmit extra emotional data of trust. Mm. You know, you see people using um, emojis, for example, because text like Unicode or ASCII doesn't carry enough emotional instruction as to whether you're joking, whether you're serious. And so you'll find people will fight uh, over text because in, in speech, they would have been able to give each other enough cues as to the fact that they were in a caring and loving place. And over text, it, it just doesn't communicate any of that. So that would be more of a neutrino example, which is what would be the difference in having this conversation via text versus doing it in person? So you and I are now actually physically in a room looking at each other. But my guess is, is if we were doing this over the phone, we would be missing all sorts of facial cues. Right, and I'll tell you, when I went from podcasting over the phone to podcasting in person, downloads went up about 5x. So it's a huge difference. Fantastic. Yeah, and that was the missing neutrino. I didn't understand why am I not getting, like, I have this great guest, okay, so, great conversation. Okay, so let's do it like that. So you think, I'm a, this is perfect now. Mm-hmm. So now we have a, a model, and the model is, I'm a great podcaster and I can count on X downloads. And then you notice that sometimes you get the downloads and sometimes you don't. And so now you try to correlate it with something that's different. Hey, I noticed that all the times I'm actually in person, I get a much higher download uh, count than, than when I'm doing it over a phone. So then you start trying to say, okay, well, what's, what's the delta? What's the difference? You come up with an object that measures all of the differences and you find out it's not the line quality. You pay for you know, a line with fantastic fidelity. You do it through video conferencing still isn't good because the eye contact is off. Mm-hmm. Eventually you realize that it's the warmth of, of eye, contact, facial, uh, eye contact, facial muscles, and all of that kind of you know, human stuff that we've always known about and we've forgotten in the modern age. That's your neutrino, right? And you know, the first time I did Sam Harris's program, I think I was the second guest ever to go to his house and record. Why? Is because I didn't want to touch a topic as dangerous as Sam's relationship with Islam. Uh, if we weren't in the same room and able to kind of see each other, reassure each other, and communicate. Well, I, I think this is that is a great example, and it neatly fits the neutrino. But I still, I still think the missing neutrino model applies to my article about saying please, and your article, your tweet about that was very specific to Google and HR and biology. That somehow or other, we, you, me, whoever miscalculated the response of the mob, right? You miscalculated that there would be people, once, once, your, once your audience was big enough, there's always going to be people trying sorry, to I'm establish sure status. I, I really miscalculated. I mean, it, it probably that tweet probably took me 45 seconds to compose. I definitely miscalculated the, the level of the reaction. The last time I checked, that tweet had more support. It had like 37 thousand likes and then it got taken down so I'm kind of interested in what Twitter did to make them go down but the number of people who said to me I joined Google because I thought it was an exciting bold company that wanted to take on the future and I can't stand my life there because it's become this politically correct um, camp in which you you can only uh, you know genuflect in front of social justice or you have to keep your mouth shut well, that was fascinating to me. So, you know, people may remember it as a controversial tweet, but take a look at the tweet. There's a tremendous amount of love, and a lot of that love is female. And a lot of that female love that that tweet got was technical females, because a lot of technical females are fed up with this. Right. And so, so 
maybe I'm trying to fit the missing neutrino model too too much, but mm-hmm. I think it's such a strong idea about reinvention and skill acquisition that I want to push it. Uh, patience then was your missing neutrino. At first, it must have been very frustrating that people were under taking things out of context. It's still frustrating. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, exactly. I don't think it simplifies. I think that what's really what's really present in this is is that I, you know, I and I want to jump out of just like the skill acquisition, which is this sure. kind of formal thing. Emotionally, how sad that we can't actually talk in a trusting environment about well, what are you going through, and how are the rest of us perceiving it, and how does your solution now feel like you're you felt bullied and now you're you're taking it out by bullying somebody else. Like this is a very fraught situation and we can't get to a more human level of understanding. I really believe that the women who are frustrated in a technical context have a lot of reasons to be frustrated. Even if it's nothing more than not having enough role models of how to combine, you know, the different pressures on on women and men, or, or you know, or even trans. You want to do any of that? So I think that that there are real problems that these groups have. And what's peculiar to our age is that they feel so emboldened that rather than making sense and being modest in your aim and scope to try to correct the problem, we're seeing these kind of, um, you know, what was the Sarah Jong, uh, you know, like cancel men or you know, she got pleasure from like uh, the amount of pleasure I derive from making old white men angry or something like this. It's just such negative, uh, aggressive, uncivil behavior that um, it crowds out the healing and the worrying about each other's problems and the listening and the comity and the uh, you know, just the best aspects of civil society that cancel culture seeks to destroy. Well, I, you know, you look at uh, a platform like Twitter, which is all about, I make a tweet, how many likes do I get? How much approval do I get? It's all, you know, related then to your neurochemicals and how <laughs> happy I get. So, so it is a way of achieving status. So these people, who, so people who are, let's say, below status on you in other ways, it's a way for them to suddenly kind of overwhelm you and and try to get so an attempt to stat, get status over you. It's, there's so many other ways to get status. Like, but, it, but they don't know that. Well, but that's the thing. You can have a negative energy, you can have a positive energy about it. And yeah. I think that um, when you hunt somebody using gotcha stuff, it's a very short ride. Okay, you're very quickly, you get your little dopamine hit, maybe you'll, you'll have a circle of people who cheer you on it doesn't lead anywhere really deep. That's the thing that I want to tell a lot of these people, which is if you want to actually correct these problems, that's super exciting. That has a future. If you really enjoy hunting people, boy, that's that's a bad business for you. Forget forget your quarry. Maybe, maybe you'll be very successful. You'll take a bunch of people down. But it's just, it's not a positive energy about it. And if I think about the people who've done the best by me, either taking me down or trying or contributing something. I mean, just try the reverse. Try both if you have to, but like try contributing to somebody's well. Give them some positive feedback, constructive feedback. 
if you don't like something they did. Um, and yet, and yet, outrage porn is almost like an addiction. So, so, and it's getting larger and larger. Well, this is what I talked about outrage templates recently. So, for mm-hmm. example, I claim that there will be a an article in the not too distant future. Uh, which will show the difference between women being highly dressed up and men being dressed down. And it will then come with uh, some commentary about this picture beautifully shows us the different standards to which women are held. Well, how do I know that? Because it's a template, because I've read that story multiple times. And Mm -hmm. that outrage template will be, it's reusable. And so they've figured out what we find outrageous. And what we haven't understood is if it's a template, don't bother reacting to the story, react to the series of stories. Right, but people are incapable of doing that. So you, you're you capable of doing that because you're, you've got your robot, you're seeing what... You no, but know. I, this is why I push out language. You, know, like mm-hmm. you asked about, you came up with the term intellectual dark web. Mm-hmm. Well, do you remember before we had the word selfie? It was really interesting. There were all of these photos uh, typically of a, a woman in a bathroom pointing the f- phone, uh, the camera on her phone at the mirror and regarding herself as like, yeah, I look pretty good. Okay, it was such a strange thing. I mean, we'd, we'd never seen this particular photo and the fact we were seeing thousands of them and nobody had a term for it. When the word selfie was discovered, it was like, oh, this thing that we've been is in our mind, but we can't talk about it because it has no language around it. Suddenly you could say, oh, you're taking a selfie? Boy, that person's too into their selfies. You know, I'm drowning in selfies. Do you see how Instagram is saturated by selfies? Whatever. That's, that's a huge shift because you gave something that everybody knew tacitly, the ability to promote it to consciousness and communicate it. So like when I tried to come up with the Thinkquisition or the intellectual dark web or- What's the Thinkquisition? Well, it's the, um, so in the Inquisition, the Jews of Spain were chased by the Spanish Inquisition into, say, Turkey in the Ottoman Empire. My claim is, is that a lot of mm. analytic, leftists, analytic lefties have been chased into the center right by the madness of these progressive lunatics. And that, um, that thing I'm calling the Inquisition is that people who are worried about uh, you know, uh, homophobia or xenophobia and all these things, but don't for a second sign up for the progressive uh, revolutionary sort of pseudo-Maoist agenda. Um, those people are now hanging out as if they were in Turkey, uh, even though their home, you know, was originally uh, in the analog of Spain. That the, the, the center right has become the Ottoman Empire to receive people chased out of the madness of Spain. You know, so 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 what I'm wondering is, what are we missing in terms of language? Yeah, so concepts, right? So so, but how do you how do you educate uh, the 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 mob of strangers that I, I think there's another thing we're missing, which is that people feel their their status has been somehow stripped from them, and that they only get it on Twitter or Instagram, and are able to join the team, let's say of polarized left in order to achieve status over people they don't they simply don't like 
like let's say straight white men or whoever. But who doesn't like straight white white <laughs> men? I mean, who who doesn't like you know? I think philosophically, uh, a lot of people fe- uh, no. uh, don't. I think this is nonsense. I, I just I, I'm going to reject this. Um, who even taught us to talk like this? Because we sound like asses. I mean, you, you know, you, you just take this incredibly vibrant multicultural country that we should all be so. I mean, in this case, this is taking place in the U.S. I think this is an incredibly exciting country. We've we've broken the ties to bloodlines. It's pretty peaceful, pretty prosperous. We do a fairly good job of assimilating and integrating people. And then to be talking constantly in 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 their terms about race and gender and sex and orientation, it's the most boring, divisive, invidious conversation imaginable. I don't want to take the bait. I don't think anybody hates straight white men. Okay, I agree. So so let's so so again, what's missing that this 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 outrage porn is only growing, and it's hard. Like I it's can't. It's not only growing; it's it's growing and shrinking. I mean, there's so much fatigue around it. Because maybe, first of all, it just it's not smart. We like being smart. We're an incredibly smart. This used to be the country of, you know, Rockefeller University, the Institute for Advanced Study, in the University of Chicago. We, we, we're great at science and math. Now we're pretending that we're bad at science and math. We're pretending that we're so evil and that we're, we're such bad stock that we have to wear hair shirts from morning till night. It's just preposterous. We, I think it's really important to recognize that in general, people are sick of this at levels that are, are powerful enough to elect a Donald Trump, right? So, you know, it was clear that Hillary was inevitable because the polls showed that you know, people were going to vote for Hillary. But secretly, they weren't supportive of Hillary. I don't even think they were supportive of Trump. They just couldn't stand the nonsense anymore. So, so you think you think then the backlash against this outrage porn has has been growing, and but maybe the outrage porn is getting louder and, yeah. and a little bit more violent. Yeah, it is. So, you know, because a few months ago, I posted an article just... Economic data points yeah. and of the past year, of the past basically yeah. since 2016, and I gave all the sources of data. They were all basically the Federal Reserve or Bureau of Labor sure. statistics. The common, the most common comment I got was, "What's the source of your data?" I had posted all the sources of data in the article. There was like almost a blind spot that the outrage porn was. It was reflexive. Yeah, it was so so. So, and I kept saying, I posted the data here, and I'll post it again. Here's here's the source. Right. So, uh, but nobody. Then people would come and James. People are clearly asking for the source of the data. Where's the source of the data? It was almost like I was in a mental institution on my own thread, uh, where people were not able to see this is the source of data and it's reliable sources that everyone would agree was is reliable. There comes some cognitive dissonance where on the outrage porn side, they can't see what they're doing. And I just wonder how do you how do you communicate with that? Uh, you you do express your opinion, and uh, but you're still going to get that outrage porn. Well, here's what I would recommend to the people who traffic in the outrage porn, as you're calling it. Um, that's a relatively small community, but it's very noisy. So I call it the the Chihuahua effect. The Chihuahua okay. effect is a very or the small vocal minority. Group. Very small group of people making a tremendous amount of noise, making you think that they're an enormous community. Mm. All right. So, for the tiny minority of people who have nothing better to do but the, than to try to take down um, 
people who are trying to be constructive and trying to think through these sorts of things. Um, you have to talk to them in the exact language that they speak. Which is your point from a few seconds ago that you don't want to do that. Sorry, which part are you drawing? If I'm well, contradicting myself, I want to know. Okay, so so the phrase, you know, using identity politics, you using the language of identity politics to talk to people is not what you want to do. Well, so I think this was at Ohio State. There was a protest and the president found his office occupied. And if it's not Ohio State, I apologize to the community in advance, but... Columbia, maybe? I, th I thought it was Columbia. So, assuming it was Ohio State, um, I think that the president said, you'll notice that none of the people who normally work here are at their desks. And that's because you created, and he uses the magic phrase, an unsafe work environment. And do you want to know why it felt unsafe? Because those people felt like they were being harassed. You know, and so they needed a safe space, so they had to go home. I see. So you're using their code words. Well, the point is that they're not aware that they've become bullies, that they are abusive in exactly the terms that they claim other people are abusive. They don't see that all of the stuff that they're trying to enforce is their own behavior against others. I mean, the truth and safety committees at these platforms are trafficking in hate. The hate traffickers are the truth and safety. Do you remember what the group was behind the French Revolution? It was called the Committee on Public Safety. I kid you not, right? And do you know in, uh, in Islamic nations with religious police, what they call the religious police? They call them the squad for the, prevention, uh, the promotion of virtue and prevention of vice, PVPV. And so what I worry about is in these situations you mentioned, they just got steadily worse. So, so another example is in the, the book, classic book, The Gulag Archipelago, Alexander Solzhenitsyn mentions, um, he quotes the main newspaper of you know, what he calls the red state at that point. And it basically says that this newspaper is saying, it doesn't matter what someone, it doesn't matter what someone is accused of, they're guilty based on whether they're bourgeois or not, based on where they come from, based on how they were you're, born. You're missing a concept. Mm -hmm. The concept is called Article 58. So Article 58 of the Soviet Penal Code, I believe, was uh, the provision that made anti-revolutionary, anti-Soviet activities a, uh, a high crime. And the great thing is, is that everyone is always guilty of Article 58. So... The only issue about Article 58 is when do you enforce it? So everybody's guilty at all times. And this is what's going on right now with the current moral panic, which is so delicious, is right. that every single breathing person is guilty of Article 58 of the social justice uh, code. Right, which is, I wonder then, I mean, that's why you could take a guy like Kevin Hart, dig through his jokes from 20 years ago and throw him off the Oscars. What I wonder is, given, again, this example from the Soviet Union or Maoism or from, where, from wherever, all these examples never really ended without violence. Well, all the examples that you brought up, like French Revolution. Yeah. I don't think it's quite that simple. I mean, I think that the, if we were in 1968, 
we would have thought, okay, the country's got to go to civil war in order to resolve this. And it didn't. Right. Right. I mean, the level of violence was much reduced from what it could have been. Yeah, I wonder why the psychology was different. Like you look at even times like 2000, you know, the election, you have Al Gore, Bush, uh, obviously a lot of hate on both sides, but it didn't result in the same kind of outrage that's happening oh, now. Because they lost control of what I've called the gated institutional narrative. The gated institutional narrative or gin was the central means by which control uh, over all of our senses of where the country was, where we were, were controlled, right? And the gated institutional narrative was subject to a tipping point between the power of uh, broadcast and print media versus the power of social multi-directional media. And so by the time we got around to 2016, the tipping point had been, had been uh, pushed in the direction that traditional media couldn't keep the story uh, under control. So, you know, the New York Times is guilty of, of a particular type of fake news that I pointed out called narrative driven news. And you figure out what the narrative is before the facts are in. So, the narrative at the New York Times is usually a very long story arc and all the facts are fit to it. And the story arc that they had before the election was Hillary Clinton is the inevitable next president of the United States. So, all of the facts that came in were fit to that narrative. And that's why they were so rudely shocked because they had engaged in this attempt to use the gated institutional narrative, but they didn't understand that we can now go around them. I mean, you know, why is a, somebody employed by the New York Times a more interesting journalist than somebody writing uh, in their underwear in their parents' basement? There's no reason. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So 
I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. You know, given that social media and these platforms have kind of created this tipping point, again, there doesn't seem like there's an end to it. I mean, I agree. The backlash probably. I think it, they're it, trying to reestablish the gated narrative, in particular, by making it very frightening uh, if you're building your business around social media that you don't know what can get you thrown off the platform. Like they don't have to throw that many people off the platform; they just need a few of those cases to be ambiguous enough. So that people check themselves. Like, gosh, I've, I've spent eight years building up my follower account and I've got a business on top of it. And now they can turn me off in a heartbeat without telling me that I've violated anything because there's some strike against me. I, I, I mean, it doesn't take much. And what they've, what they've figured out is, is that you can just threaten people's livelihoods. You don't have to threaten uh, you know, their, the, them with bodily harm. Just Threaten their reputation. The reputation is necessary to earn a livelihood. Livelihood is necessary to have a life. QED, you're done. Yeah, and the, and again, I don't. How does that end? Where what's what's the final chapter in that? Well, I don't know, but I'll tell you where I think it's going. I think that where it's going is is that the claims are getting so preposterous, and the number of people who are fed up with left Carthyism are willing to say that it's an idiocy, and in particular, the people like me on the left 
I think are the biggest problem for this kind of thought policing because at least when it's people who use words like libtard or own the libs from the right, you can dismiss it as that kind of garbage on the right. right? I think that's garbage speak on the right. right. And then they've always done that and it's always been irritating and stupid. I think that when it comes from the left, you're saying, you know, I share your aspirations for a more equal, better, healthier world, but you're the problem now. I mean, you're out of control and you're make you're embarrassing all of us by creating a bloodlust um, coming out of the left that will eventually consume you all. You're, you're going to end up like Robespierre, aren't you? Well, and I do think, again, I think there's some, some, something, some force has to happen from the outside to shake that up. And like historically, it's been violence. And I'm not, I'm not, of course, of course, I'm not advocating that. I'm just afraid of that. Yeah, but that's what the IDW is doing. It's saying, here's an alternative to violence. Let's just point out that this is ridiculous and stand up and notice the pleasure that comes from clearing your throat and speaking in your own voice. Right. And that's why when people come to the shows that we do, you know, part of what they're getting is the ability to see, to look. One of the most moving things is you're looking around a filled arena and thousands of people think like you and they have no voice. This is why, you know, Trump at his rallies was holding the rally because he wanted to see that the public in large numbers was with him. Now, I'm not a Donald Trump fan. I want to see him, you know, I want to see him defeated in 2020. But what he was doing was he was using the public events as like Nielsen ratings. Am I doing okay? Because if I listen to you guys over in the news media, uh, I'm the worst human being since Pol Pot. But if I actually look at my, my crowds, people are cheering me on. Well, that's a lot of what's going on with like the intellectual dark web. We're not at all like Trump, but I can see the hunger. People are dying you know, for me to start a podcast. They're dying... Write a book, tell us more. How can we contribute? Why? Because they've found themselves voiceless. And it's really interesting to me how a tiny number of writers and, and anchormen and late night comedians have pretended that an entirely different structure um, doesn't exist in the United States. And I guess because they have such a big microphone collectively... It's not the bigness of the microphone. It's the complete absence of anything else. Hmm. You know, where is the conservative late night host who is not a racist? You know, it's like, oh, here's a good missing community. The number of people in the US who are both xenophilic, who like Thai food and they want to uh, travel to Argentina and they're learning Indonesian, who knows what, and who still don't want open borders is a very large number of people. I would say it's probably the majority position. In general, we don't want to be inundated with people who are suddenly being promoted to citizenship or permanent residency. We want some immigration, but we don't want a flood. And we're super interested in the outside world and, and very happy with uh, you know this way in which we're getting to see a larger portion of our planet and experience the benefits of multicultural interaction. That community of people who are both restrictionist and xenophilic, there is no record that it exists, much mm. less a record that it is probably the majority position. Mm. And why is that? And it's because of a concept that was highlighted to me 
by the founder of the Data and Society Institute, uh, Dana Boyd, where she said, we need to use strategic silence. I thought, what is strategic silence? Strategic silence is that when you punish perspectives that you don't like by not reporting them, I thought, wow, how fascinating. So something happens that's a news story. You, the reporter, say, I don't like what will happen if I report on this and I don't want to be used, so I'm simply going to refuse to report the news. Well, that's what we're we're suffering from an epidemic of badly determined strategic silence, that we are strategically silent on all sorts of things which the country cares about and doesn't hold crazy positions. There's nothing crazy about wanting to be a restrictionist. There's nothing xenophobic about it. And what you understand over time is is the only reason that this state of affairs exists is that somehow a group of people want to say, if you even mention restricting uh, immigration to the US, I want to be able to infer that the only reason that that's true is because you've got a black heart, right? Your, your heart is just coated with evil. And it's just, I, I, I sort of, I chuckle. You have to be insane to think anything like that could be true. And yet there's no counterexample. So all of the late night comedians, in essence, it's like the same voice with multiplicity 10. And, and, and you can't have the counterexample among late night comedians because they'll get the same treatment Kevin Hart just got on the Oscars. Someone's gonna, there's gonna be the outrage and they're gonna get fired. At your point, their livelihood's gonna no, be no, affected. No, but, but, but that's an interesting case, right? We just saw the Sarah Silverman tweet from 2010 where she said, you know, something like, not like there's anything wrong with it, but the new Bachelorette's a faggot. Whoa, okay. So you're being edgy, you're being a comedian. That's cool, but. You want to know what? You just right, lost the right to police anyone ever for microaggressions. I don't think I've ever made a joke like that in my life on Twitter. right? I've never used those words. Why is Sarah Silverman still with us? And the answer actually comes down to the system of indulgences, which is the problem isn't whether you committed a crime. The issue is, are you eligible for an indulgence so that you can continue to, to live in the world? So Sarah Silverman who's, you know, as a Bernie supporter, um, probably has an indulgence from the system. But if somebody who's conservative um, makes a joke, they won't get an indulgence. So it's not really even the crimes, it's the selective prosecution of the crimes and whether or not forgiveness or clemency will be offered. And that's how the magic trick is done. It's not like, I forget, who was the late night comedi- uh, comedian who used to do the man show? Uh, Jimmy Kimmel. Okay. I guarantee you, therefore, that Jimmy Kimmel is going to have a lot of stuff that would be considered offensive. But my guess is, is that he's got an indulgence. He probably said, I apologize. Probably he's a very staunch Democratic supporter. And that will mean that he won't actually have to stand for these as crimes where somebody else will be uh, you know, in, uh, in the stocks, uh, in the public square being humiliated. So, so it seems like a solution you can't you can't go out there and earn those indulgences a solution is basically kind of to do what you're doing and just be as you know being able to express your opinions figuring out where the comfort zone is so career is not ruined and amassing you know giving people permission to basically say what they think even if it's different than yours even if it's different than you know this you know mass media uh 
and kind of just accumulating in numbers these mm-hmm. people who can think and speak freely. And and you always talk about first principles. I'm going to veer it towards that, which is where do you sort of accumulate your first principles so you can start to to think this way? And and B, I guess you know how do you be careful about where that line is because the line is very dangerous. Sure. I mean, I think that the first thing is is that you should get a good grounding in a few fields that have incredible reach. So just to begin with, there's no framework that is more important to the average person than the framework of evolutionary theory. So learn as much as you can about systems of selective pressures, both natural and sexual selection. Uh, I'd start off with, I'm not sure where to go first, but might want to try the selfish gene. It's got problems, but it's pretty good. Um, I would Jeff, highly recommend. I would highly recommend the Cambridge Encyclopedia of Human Evolution. It's a really great book to try to place us in context as a species uh, of apes. Um, I think economics is really important because economics markets are the continuation of natural and sexual selection by other means. So it can be systematized, and we interact with each other through markets. Markets organize us where. Uh, command and control structures cannot. So thank God we don't have the president telling us that what we have to do every morning. The market tells us what to do. And in some sense, that's super important as a framework. I definitely think um, having an offbeat history, um, read regular history and then read the Howard Zinn version of history and then read some super arch conservative version of the same history. Learn how to walk around history from all the different perspectives. Uh, and then I think that... Um, Try to find the most durable parts of psychology. I think one of the reasons Jordan Peterson's been so successful is, is that he stayed very close to the to the ground floor with uh, psychometrics, and psychometrics weren't negatively affected uh, like the rest of psychology by the reproducibility crisis. So figure out what you can and can't say. In his case, he focuses on IQ and big five personality inventories, which are pretty solid. Mm. So I think that that's super interesting. There, there are lots of frameworks that you you just need to know if you're going to try first principles thinking. And what you have to not do is find the wrong heuristic framework that claims that it's first principles. So for example, highly uh, be highly suspicious of sociology. Be highly suspicious of certain aspects of psychology which are not based on um, reproducible science. Be very concerned about fields that were created in the wake of campus unrest in the 60s and 70s because the standards for those fields appears to be different um, than for the fields that preceded them. That doesn't mean that there weren't problems in the fields that preceded them, but uh, various forms of activist and grievance studies are definitely um, not good because they come from a tradition of heuristic rather than fundamentals, and there's no way of adjudicating things that go counter-narrative to those fields. Once you sort of realize where bedrock is, and by the way, if you can do math, mathematics, physics, chemistry, and programming, that won't hurt you either. Um, then you'll have an idea about what reliable knowledge is all about. And you have to be very bigoted and prejudiced against fields that are trying to hawk non-reliable knowledge as if it was reliable knowledge. And that can happen in a field like physics where physics you know, has been pushing a string theory agenda which is certainly not reliable knowledge as if it was reliable knowledge. But you know, a lot of physics is absolutely rock, 
rock solid. So you have to know even within a field that this part is the good part and this part is the dangerous part. Mm. That's part of why people are tuning into us, I think. And so um, I guess it's just a, a final thing. You're, you know, managing director of a big VC fund slash hedge fund. I thought we were gonna talk about our hair. <laughs> what do you do during the day other than brushing your hair? <laughs> it depends. Um, you know, if, if uh, sometimes um, I'm working on physics, sometimes I'm thinking about markets and contributing in our research group. Uh, sometimes um, I'm listening to somebody, you know, talking about a company or we're trying to think about where we might take the philanthropic arm. But uh, I think, it, you know, uh, I don't get a chance to talk too much about Peter Thiel, and I consider him uh, not only my employer, but he's an amazing friend, an amazing human being, and a great teacher. What's what's one of what's a couple of your takeaways from from him and from interacting? With oh him? well, it's part of the problem. You see, the reason I don't talk about Peter almost at all is is that the news media created a fictional character called Peter Thiel. Um, and the two of them are totally different. The real Peter Thiel and the fictional Peter Thiel aren't the same person. And so every time I talk about the real Peter Thiel, people imagine that I'm talking about a vampire who lives on a seastead, uh, you know, off of New Zealand, drinking the blood of virgins to stay young. And I've just never met that person. So I, in general, don't love talking about just because that they figured out a very effective gambit for trying to silence his insights. I'll give you one insight that I think is really particularly good. Peter has this thing that he does, which I call um, radical compression with minimal distortion. And academics usually will tolerate almost no distortion. So they often miss principles that Peter sees. On the other hand, um, Peter will say something like, I think one of his was a challenge where he said, we've become much less positive about technology and science. Find me a, uh, a movie after Back to the Future that viewed technology positively. Hmm. Well, because he poses a challenge, I worked, I worked really hard in my head and I came up with one. There's a, a little indie film called Safety Not Guaranteed that technology makes a really beautiful appearance in. But... The point was, I was behaving like an academic. I was willing to accept no distortion. Peter, it's not true. There's one movie that, well, if, if that's true, right, that there's only one movie that I can think of, then his point is obviously mostly correct. The Martian. Well, this was before The Martian okay. came out. Yeah. 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 I actually discussed that on Tim Ferriss. It's the ultimate high agency movie. And Andy Weir has been on uh, this podcast as well. He's the author of the original novel. Yeah. So the, um, but, the, this is a thing that I learned from Peter, which is be willing to be a little bit wrong if the principle uh, can be packed up into like a single sentence. And right, that, that's a it's a boast. You know, it's basically saying, did you notice how much our artistic world and our cultural world has turned against technology and progress? Yeah, it's so interesting because you look at I I actually do a bit about this in in stand up. If you look at ro movies just about robots, yeah, the re either they're male robots who are shooting everyone, or they're female robots who are luring you into sex, but then locking you up and leaving to to infiltrate society. Uh huh. So it's like kind of there's this sexism in robots, but they're all evil. Well, or the Austin Powers ones, which are actually 
uh, deadly through their sexuality, right? right the fembots. Right. right. Yeah. So, yeah, so robots are, kind robots of a, are bad. A, a sub study of that. Uh, I don't know why this keeps ringing. Um, but, all right, what's another thing you've learned from um, Peter? Peter's been on the podcast, so I'm always fascinated by more insights. What's a, what, if you can, what's another? Uh, well, another one of his would be um, learn to live with almost contradictions. So, for example. In both, it seems like there's a fuzziness, which I like. Well, but, but this is, you, you see, people say he's a contrarian, but he's not. You, you can't just put a minus sign in front of everything and have that work out. You'll bankrupt yourself. Right. So <clears throat> he's always finding um, the interesting contrarian play. So one of them, for example, is most radical individualists are bad team players and most team players are really group thinkers. But there's nothing inherently contradictory about being a radical individualist who's also an exceptional team player. So go search for that, you know, because it's an almost contradiction. But if you can find a tiny number of people, that's super terrific. Um, a different version of this is that most smart people are uninteresting. And you're looking for people who are both surprising and smart. Well, most of the people who talk in surprising ways aren't smart. And most of the people who talk in smart ways aren't surprising. Now, which of these categories should you search first? The claim is, in general, you should search the surprising people first. Why? Because while not everybody's smart, there are a huge number of smart people. It'll, it'll take way too long. Better to look at the tiny number of people who are saying truly surprising things and see if any of them are smart is a better search process. So various ways of just unspinning the world and seeing it differently. You know, at some point I tried to take Peter's book and turn it into a collection of aphorisms. And, um, you know, or, or, or sort of little vignettes. So, you know, Peter talks about last mover advantage. And you think about, well, what does that mean, last mover advantage? Well, take any look at, a, at um, bicycle sprints. And in bicycle sprints, you have two guys trying to go as slow as possible around the track. They're each trying to draft the other from behind to get the other guy to do the work for them, mm. right? So it looks like it's going to be a sprint, but they didn't realize that when they wrote down the rules that it was actually going to cause a strategic chess-like situation to bring it to a crawl. Well, that's like last mover advantage. You let the other guys make the mistakes, and then you're the last one who's learned from everybody else, and everybody else is fatigued, and you still have, have energy. Or another one would be... Um, you know, around people always want to throw the outliers out um, when they're doing statistics. On the other hand, uh, the outliers may be all that determines anything in a, in a given system because kurtosis and uh, the, the far right tail is such a powerful effect. And so, you know, understanding that you're not cleaning your data, what you're doing is, is that you're, uh, you're confusing baby and bathwater. You know that's an important principle. It's interesting because the same thing occurs in relationships. People, when they meet, let's say on a date, they're on their best behavior, and then three months in, finally one has an outburst that's like out of control, and the other side might think, "Okay, well that was just he was just frustrated or she was frustrated," but that actually is their real, the real leakage coming out about what this system is like, what this person is like. Maybe. So maybe. Yeah. 
But, or you know, people. Another one would be he, Peter's always on about the tech slowdown. I have a different version of this as a, a core theory of mine. And whenever you hear the thing about the tech slowdown, um, the, somebody will always say, "Oh, I, look at my phone. I have a phone in my pocket. It's got the Library of Congress. You know, at the, the touch of a button, it's the most amazing thing." I tried to create an aphorism about this, which is, of course, your phone is amazing. It's all that was. It's all that's left from your once limitless future. Um, you know, it was the collision of the two things that worked best, which was the the semiconductor and communications technology. Well, well, and I view that as the reason you can't quite call that innovative is because it was already predicted in the '60s. Like Moore's law predicts your phone in your pocket. It predicts super. Well, but it's not a question whether it is or it isn't innovative. It it has been innovative. the The problem is that all of the other things that we were predicting, all of the Jetsons stuff, or all of the positive ver versions of a technological future, um, have been much more stalled. And so, I often give people this challenge. You're in, a, you're in a restaurant, say. Uh, how do you prove, how many ways can you prove that it's not 1973? Mm. Right? And so, you know, the styles certainly aren't 1973, but it's not a proof because maybe it's a, just a funny restaurant. And, you know, it's always the things uh, around like the phones, you know, or the, the maybe there's a flat screen TV. But there's very little that lets you know that it's not 1973 anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to just recognize that the fact that some things worked is disguising how much hasn't been working. And that's good news because it's an opportunity for us to restart all of these things that are stalled out. And so it's not pessimism, it's optimism. It's saying, hey, great news. We've been neglecting all sorts of areas of growth. And now we have the chance to do it. We just have to recognize that it didn't get done. And if we're going to do it, it's going to require rolling up our sleeves and figuring out who's good at what rather than constantly complaining that something somewhere is unfair. Okay, and so going full circle, would you agree that is the missing neutrino in our kind of analysis of innovation? We predicted the Jetsons. It didn't happen, even though we have got all these brilliant innovators. Right, and then what measures the difference, right? Remember, that was the next part of right. it, which is... Um, you have to figure out how, by, you know, by what does it fail. And I would say that the failure has been that the atomic world has not progressed like the electron world or the bit world, the data world. Mm. And so un undoubtedly the problem is we have to get good at innovating in the atoms again as well as you know, complementary to our, our innovations and in data structures. All right, well, Eric Weinstein, thanks so much for spending hey, James, two, thanks. <laughs> two hours uh, talking with me. It's the benefit of having a podcast is you could just talk to people like you and, and learn. We'll come up to San Francisco and we'll do this again. All right, definitely. Excellent. Thanks, James. Mm -hmm.